Welcome to FinTech at Haas. Today, I'm joined by Matt Austin, Chief of Staff at Phoenix. Phoenix is a SaaS payment startup based in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. How are things going? How's things been over the past few months? Never a dull moment in a very good way, though. You know, being a part of a company as we continue to scale, it's, it's really exciting and we'll dive into it, but something I've been itching to do for a number of years. Awesome. To get us started, can we just get a quick overview of Phoenix, what it does and what's the problem that it's solving? Yeah, you always hear about the, the payments ecosystem and there's a lot to unpack there. So hopefully this is a better articulation of what we do here at Phoenix. Phoenix is a payments infrastructure company and we enable software companies to transform their business model. And we do this by allowing them to embed payments within their product stack. And this is beneficial for a number of different reasons, but think about now capturing a brand new revenue stream because you're monetizing payments flows you're controlling your user experience and you're just growing your market share in a brand new way. So a good example would be a company, a customer that we work with, Club Essential. So Club Essential is based out of Ohio and provides vertical SaaS platform for the health and wellness clubs around the country. So they work with thousands of different customers around the country. And typically clubs that use Club Essential software had to deal with a number of different service providers when trying to capture payments or accept payments. So you'd have a relationship with someone that would be collecting your monthly dues. You'd have a hardware provider. So think about those terminals where you put your EMV chip into their hardware. So you'd have that person taking or accepting payments. And finally, you'd have Club Essential providing that software. We allow Club Essential to embed payments within their software application making it easier for their customers by providing them one single solution and allowing them also to capture a brand new revenue stream. So to dive into that a little bit further and how I like to look at it, you have all of these companies, you know, companies like Club Essential who are SaaS business models, recurring revenue, you know, that sticky that are now expanding their initial addressable market by embedding payments within that payment stack. So you, you can generate a significant amount of money by licensing your software, but now you're also capturing a percentage of your total payments volume that goes through your platform and adding that as top line revenue. So I, I like to look at it as you're taking payments processing from a traditional operating expense, putting it into cost of goods sold, and now capturing as much net revenue as you possibly can. And Phoenix allows that. So a, a lot to unpack there. But uh, in summary, we're a payments infrastructure provider that allows you to own and monetize payments. Is one of the main goals of a company to use Phoenix to generate extra revenue? It's one of the goals. You can definitely add a brand new revenue stream that you previously weren't monetizing. But also, I think what's highly underrated is the control of your user experience. So you're providing that mechanism for onboarding or you own the customer experience, you own the customer contract, you dictate the onboarding. The, the customer experience is... I would argue the most pivotal part of any relationship. And instead of giving that experience to a third party, we now allow our customers like Club Essential to own that customer experience. So the revenue is great. Everyone likes to add to the top line, but also to that control of the user experience and that expansion of TAM, which you just frankly don't get a lot of opportunities to double your revenue, improve your customer experience and grow your market share. But this is kind of the paradigm shift we're seeing. Who does Phoenix replace in the payment stack for a club essential? Well, I think about it is, you know, previously you had a couple different options for, for monetizing payments. 
historically, a lot of customers that we work with deal with uh, ISO, so independent sales organizations. These are institutions that would, you know, boots on the ground, come to a service provider like a Club Essential or an SMB, uh, see how they're acquiring payments and say, oh, we'll help you get you set up. We'll you know, help you integrate to a processor. We'll give you the hardware, the software, et cetera. But you were dictated by their user experience, you know, their software, their hardware. So we're providing a new option for customers to leverage our software to integrate directly into processors and start accepting payments seamlessly, leveraging software. So a lot of it's just a shift in payments flows and how people are accepting payments. Given the economic turmoil that's been going on the, the last few months, how's that impacted the business? Have you seen transaction volumes going down or have you seen more customers trying to join Phoenix to boost their user experience and to capture more revenue themselves? We're definitely, definitely seeing a, a, a paradigm shift in more companies wanting to take control of the payments experience. So that is certainly a larger macro trend we're starting to see. And as small SMBs have started to feel the pinch and there, there is, you know, the brick and mortar businesses that have struggled, but we've also seen other trends like e-com, contactless payments, other macro trends that are really accelerating the merge of software and payments. So we published a blog post about this a couple of weeks ago that we've seen payments volume increase significantly on our platform. And it's because more and more companies want to take ownership of payments. I'm definitely seeing like similar things, the embedded finance space where more and more non-fintech companies are wanting to embed different services into their product offering, whether it's payments or lending. It's a really big theme and Phoenix is very well placed to, to take advantage of that. Last week, you guys announced you extended your Series B. Congratulations. It'd be great to understand more about that process and what were the decision factors behind extending the round? Before COVID, we discussed this briefly already, but companies were already recognizing that power of embedding payments and other financial services into their applications. So that transformation was already happening, but COVID has just accelerated that trend much more quicker than any of us could have possibly anticipated. So we were seeing these shifts that were already starting to happen in purchasing decisions and how payments were are being accepted. But would highlight a lot about what, what Richie, our CEO, talks about as far as uh, technology-enabled paradigm shifts. So we saw, you know, the impact of internet, mobile, cloud, et cetera. These are, I mean, so ubiquitous that all of us kind of take it for granted. But now we're at this next paradigm shift where financial services, uh, especially payments, is going to be the next ubiquitous paradigm shift. Every software company will become a payment company. And to revisit the earlier trend, we're just going to see more and more of these companies that expand their TAM enter new markets, drive higher customer lifetime values, and just deliver a better experience at the same time. So COVID has just catalyzed this digital transformation that has been, you know, frankly, years in the, in the making, and we're in a, a great position to double down on that. So the Series B and the extension of the Series B is going to allow us to do that. Was the extension mainly to take advantage of this paradigm shift you talked about? A lot of it, frankly, growth. I mean, that's, that's another perspective where we definitely see that this paradigm shift is adding a lot to our business. We're seeing more companies that want to pursue this thesis. So we, we need the team to be able to continue to build this out. And how can we onboard as many happy Phoenix customers as possible? And we, we just need talented folks to help us get there. So a lot of it was entering this period of uncertainty in a position of strength. And we'll double down on hiring great people. Hopefully we'll double the team by the middle of next year. 
and focus a lot on engineering and product. And uh, well, I mean, I have to throw it out there too, but a, a quick shameless plug that we are actively hiring. So any, any podcast listeners, <laughs> please check out our Phoenix job postings. And so part of the extension round, you brought Amex and Lightspeed onto the cap table. Why those two specifically? What do you feel that like they bring to the table? It wasn't just an overnight thing. So we've been building a relationship with Lightspeed and Amex for a period of time. Richie, our CEO, he's known Will and Natalie from the Lightspeed team pretty much since the Series A process. So we've always been impressed with their expertise in both enterprise and fintech. And we've just had a close relationship with them for over a year now at this point. On the Amex side, a very natural and strategic partnership for, for us. We support the entire payments ecosystem, including card networks. And Amex has a fast-growing distribution channel for merchant services, uh, specifically within vertical SaaS. So this is great for, for our customers. And the addition of both is just a, a huge value add to us as we continue to grow. Amex has been making a lot of waves recently with acquisitions. It's great to see they're expanding into new areas and pushing the, the boundaries of what they are as a company. Definitely. One company in particular, I mean, Cabbage is, is a customer. We didn't touch on this, but a customer we partner with and even during COVID have been going through a lot of initiatives to help small businesses and SMBs get through COVID. And one particular campaign as far as helping small businesses with their working capital needs. So we, we partner with them, waived our fees and, and help them as they continue to help small businesses. So great to see even things like Amex partnering with them. Do you see lending in the future for Finex? You're seeing a lot of the transactions from your customers. Is there a potential to, to leverage that data into some sort of lending product? Honestly, right now it's, we're focusing on our core product offering. So embedded payments, what that offers to our customers, but channeling my past experience, it's always looking at adjacencies and what new opportunities open up. But first and foremost, it's just making sure that we deliver the best experience and the best product that we currently have, both on the enterprise side and on uh, Flex, which uh, I'm sure we'll probably touch on as well. If we go back to the beginning of Phoenix, what's the origin story? How did Richie come up with, with the idea? This question kind of channels my final interview with Richie. And I mean, I asked the same question. How do you start a company and get to this position? At, at the time I was interviewing, it, it was right after the, the Series A and you know Matt Harris and Bank Capital leading the round. But just getting to hear his story, both him and Sean and how they complement one another and, and really created this business. But it started with Richie was uh, an engineer at Balance Payments. It was the, the first payments API for marketplaces. It exited Stripe in 2015. And as they were going through that process, Richie was in charge of migrating balance customers to the new platform. And if you know Richie, he's great at just analyzing large swaths of data and this uncanny ability to just ingest so much of this data and, and have actionable insights. But part of that process was when looking at the data, he noticed that the best performing clients weren't necessarily marketplace businesses, but as these vertical SaaS companies that focused on very niche parts of the economy that were the fastest growing businesses. So saw a huge market opportunity there. And during that process of working at Balance, he had met our co-founder, Sean Donovan. And Sean has just this really deep background in, in the payments ecosystem. He was a, an executive advantage for, uh, I think, 15 plus years. He also partnered with Balance. So the two of them met while Richie was at Balance. And he noticed in particular that, well, Sean, that is, Balance could help a customer go live in six weeks, whereas someone like a, a Vantive was, it was taking clients 12 to 24 months to launch. 
So how was this FinTech just launching or enabling their clients to get to market so fast? And the two of them, you know, it's kind of like a meeting of minds that they both knew there was a huge opportunity there. So they had joined forces in 2015, Phoenix started, and now we just continue to build on that vision that they saw almost six years ago. So it's kind of wild. You mentioned earlier, Phoenix Flex is your newest product. How does that fit into the, the overall business plan? I, I see it as like a gateway into the main Phoenix product for SMBs who have smaller transaction volumes. Before answering that question, it's helpful to understand what, what was the initial vision and what was the initial product and how does Flex dovetail into that? So our core offering allows any software company that wants to monetize payments but you typically had to meet this volume threshold. So you were usually processing, you know, in excess of $5,100 million in, in annual GMB. Some companies had no payment strategy. Others were already processing billions on their stack. And some were dealing with ISO relationships that we had discussed before. So we were already seeing this huge demand of enterprise customers. But during the, the sales qualification process, we were seeing so many of these customers that might not have met the GMB threshold that justified that cost benefit. And unfortunately, you're kind of disqualifying a lot of great customers that want to take ownership of payments, but just weren't ready to take that step now. So what, that's what Flex enabled. It's how can we allow software companies to begin monetizing payments today and reduce the cost of becoming a payment facilitator later down the road, which is what our, our enterprise offering is. It is, we are giving you all the tools needed to become your own payment facilitator. So with, with Flex, we can now build and scale that customer that we were previously disqualifying on the Phoenix platform, give them access to our APIs, and they'll use another payment facilitator behind the scenes to start monetizing transactions. And this just removes a huge switching costs that were previously associated with them potentially partnering with someone else, instead giving them the option of going with Flex further down the road when they were ready, they were within the Phoenix ecosystem and things like token migration, merchant migration, technical integration, UX, et cetera. It, it's just a much easier flipping of the proverbial switch. So that was a, a big strategic decision behind Flex. And it really just expands our TAM. Early in the life cycle, we can partner with earlier stage companies, help them ramp up, and eventually one day be comfortable with taking full ownership of the payment stack and having Phoenix as your trusted partner throughout your entire life cycle. I guess for Phoenix as well, it extends the lifetime value of the customers that you have. You benefit from the volumes they're putting through over their entire life cycle. Absolutely. Yep. How has Phoenix Flex scaled so far? Are merchants willing to start thinking about becoming their own payments facilitator that early? We are. Once you go over the benefits of what that provides to you as a software provider, it's almost like a no brainer. Why would you not want to one day add new revenue, provide a better customer experience, expand your TAM, increase your LTVs? It's something that more and more companies are wanting to pursue earlier in their life cycle because we're abstracting away all of the complexities that were previously associated with accepting payments and doing so API first, software first, and giving these customers a really rich experience. So yeah, we've seen a lot of demand earlier in the life cycle. Once we announced Flex, and we've had some webinars on Flex and just better articulated you know, what the value proposition of that product is. We've seen significant demand so far. We've had you know, customers go live already. We continue to onboard more Flex customers. So uh, 
yeah, software companies becoming payments companies is, uh, you'll hear that throughout, but it's, it's definitely a thing. You, you mentioned Matt Harris earlier. I think he's been the biggest proponent of finance becoming the next big platform. And I'm definitely of, of the same opinion. I think payment has become the, the first form of embedded finance and to see what eventually comes further down the line. I, th I think lending is a very big opportunity as well. Who are the main competitors of Phoenix? Even take a step back and just first look at the market landscape. I mean, the TAM of payments is a $2 trillion market. It's almost unbelievable, but I mean, that's just... To your point, payments are so integral in pretty much every part of our daily lives. The, the opportunity space is already massive, but there are players you know, all, all across the space. And our view is that payments and software will continue to merge and that embedded finance movement will continue. But we have a distinct view that the best way for software companies to monetize payments is to take full ownership of the payment stack. So to break that down even further, there's been a couple of ways to do this in the past. You can, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have a payment service provider. You know, there's the the stripes and the squares of the world that are you know, easy to use. Uh, you can spin it up quickly, but it comes at a cost. And you also don't fully own that customer relationship. And we'll go back to a prior comment. I see having more control over the customer experience is highly underrated. And providing a great customer experience is, I mean, that should be table stakes for any company, you know, fintech or otherwise. So you have those parties. On the other end of the spectrum, you have companies that are going down the path of let's build out our payments infrastructure ourselves. So making a strategic decision to dump a bunch of CapEx into trying to build your own payment stack. So we've seen companies like Airbnb and the Ubers of the world. And it started off as let's integrate payments into our product or our technology, but now it's we've seen because it is so complex to accept payments and integrate into processors, you're seeing a teams of hundreds of engineers at both of those companies. So huge upfront investment, two to three years to go to market and ongoing maintenance costs that are millions of dollars. So there's this third option and that's the world that we enable at Finex, which you're gonna start seeing the, you know, we've already seen a few payment facilitation enablement platforms. And you know, if, if the audience isn't too familiar with payment facilitation, we have you know another shameless plug, some really, really good blog posts on this. But that is what we, we really started to see another huge opportunity space in that payment facilitator ecosystem. So we've started to do that, but move beyond that as well. So we are dedicated to helping platforms, ISVs, and fintechs all monetize their payments and deliver amazing customer experiences. And so we think that payment facilitator route is going to be you know, one way to do that. And we provide the software that enables that to happen. I can definitely attest to the great blog posts that Phoenix has put together. It's definitely helped me really understand the, the very complicated payments stack. So given you guys have just extended your series B, what is the main goal over the next few years? What's the biggest challenge that's stopping you from growing as quickly as you want? The heuristic I like to use is that no matter what business you're in, you're in a people business and hiring really great talent takes time. So we've seen that even with you know, COVID and some of the unfortunate layoffs you see, it's still a very competitive market and top talent is, despite what headlines say, it's scarce. So we're dedicating a lot of time to finding the right people. We're dedicating... A, a ton of time to learning and development, operational excellence, et cetera, 
But pretty much all of that focuses around our people. And we are spending a lot of time trying to just hire and onboard really talented people who want to be at Phoenix and become better employees. So that's, I would say, the biggest challenge. And some of the other challenges, I would be remiss if I didn't channel my MBA experience. So I'll go into that a bit. I know there's a lot of Twitter bashing on of MBAs, but I really loved everything that I learned. And I mean, for instance, we all go through analyzing a case and you learn about scaling a business, growing a business, everything that happens from an organizational perspective through the lens of this you know, typical protagonist. And you can probably relate to this. I mean, in, in a classroom, it, it feels very theoretical. It's like, oh, this seems really cool, but it's, it's a case. And I, I always like that, but now it's like I'm getting to go through all of that in real life. So it's probably the coolest thing you can ever experience, but it comes with significant challenges. Every single day, it, there's a new challenge. Surface area continues to expand. I mean, hiring, culture, organizational design, pricing, you name it. It just every day is a new challenge. So I often find myself, and this happened last week, combing through old MBA slides and you know notes, and it's like, you know, how can I channel a lot of you know what I was doing back then to really apply it to today? And it's a challenge, but at the same time, it's the coolest learning opportunity you can ever have. And if you like being in that environment where the slope of the learning curve is just extremely steep every single day then it is amazing to join a place like Phoenix and get to contribute and add value every single day. It's the most challenging, but the most rewarding experience all rolled into one. I definitely want to dig a lot more into your role of chief of staff. And I think that was a good segue into, you know, switching gears into your background. I saw you worked in financial services for quite some time. What's been the decision process to move to startup world? Yeah, in hindsight, I, I look at my CV and it's it's kind of like this random walk that you look at it and you're like, at, in, the, in the moment, you don't know what, what you're doing. But in hindsight, especially now, and we'll, we'll get into this, it, it does seem like everything came together very fortuitously. But what, what led to that was, you know, I graduated in the midst of the global financial crisis. So I was a finance accounting undergrad. I was, I'll say, a, a capital markets nerd to the uh, utmost extent. So I, I was that guy, you know, in the back of the class, you know, reading a Wall Street Journal and the FT, and I was just obsessed with markets. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. No one in my family had ever been in finance, but it just all seemed extremely intriguing. So I had dreams that I was going to be an investment banker. It's like that's the path. I know I'll get there. And then September '08 happened, and my I was humbled quickly. So I remember uh, literally sitting in my, you know, my grandfather was a great mentor to me. So I was you know, sitting in his house and going through, you know, kind of how dejected I was about that. And the first piece of advice he gave me that's always kind of resonated with me is that uh, if you want to make these big, bold life plans, write those plans in pencil. So <laughs> continue to adopt that mentality and deviate as necessary. But the first deviation was I had an accounting degree. CPA firms were for the most part hiring still. So I, I took a job and started at KPMG, was working in our Albany office. And it might not have been my first option, but I got so much great experience there. I was working across industries, capital markets, railroads, manufacturing companies, you name it. I was kind of like this jack of all trades and just learned all these different business models. On top of that, I was managing you know, teams of you know, 10 to 25 people. So got the leadership experience there as well. But it really instilled this mindset of how do I break down a company understand their business model and really understand how to run a company. 
I mean, you're in the trenches learning from people who are operating a company. And I, I would like to think I was always kind of taking mental notes. So that, that continued, but I was always kind of itching for that Wall Street dream. So while at KPMG was studying for my LSAT at night. So I was convinced I was going to be a securities attorney. It's like, I took the LSAT, I had all of my applications filled in. And then the next day, or, you know, shortly thereafter, a partner I was working for with at KPMG called me into his office and he said, I've got a bunch of clients in New York. How would you feel about moving to New York? And to me, it was like the gods were just shining from the heavens and saying, it is time, Matt, you, you need to go to New York. So I, I was pretty pumped and I, I jumped on it. So no more LSAT, no more law school, stayed with KPMG, but went into New York and took on a brand new client base. So it was all international banks, broker dealers, hedge funds. But what was really cool, and I promise I'll finally start to actually answer your question, but I started started having this client base where so many of these, you know, capital markets clients were, it was just 2011, 2012, were starting to invest more heavily in software. I mean, it was becoming a thing and uh, electronic trading had already been you know years in the making, but now more and more companies wanted to use software to gain alpha. And I, in particular, had a couple of clients who I would literally stay there at night and just be sitting in you know the trading floor, watching all of the traders, hearing what they were talking about, and then understanding better how these companies were approaching technology. So that crossover of financial services and technology really started to click in 2011, 2012 for me. And it was like, this really seems like it's going to be a thing. So this is pre-fintech. I don't think fintech was even in the vocabulary back then, but that continued. And grad school was still always something I wanted to pursue. And part of my capital markets nerdum was always being a big fan of Warren Buffett. I was like, Warren Buffett just seemed like the coolest guy ever and uh, him and Charlie Munger. So when I learned about his Columbia experience and his work with Benjamin Graham and just all that he did as far as from value investing, I went to one class at Columbia for a class visit and was like, this is it. I knew Columbia was the place for me and started at Columbia in 2014. And that intersection of finance and software just continued. I was a teaching assistant for one of our first FinTech courses the professor I worked with was a vice chair at Morgan Stanley. I mean, an unbelievable human being, unbelievable mentor for me to this day. But he always said, he's like, look, this is, this is going to be huge. If you look at financial services and software and where we're heading, this is going to be a huge opportunity. So I'm lucky that I had someone kind of, you know, I was like the, the kid riding the bicycle. You know, I had this guy pushing me kind of into the right direction. He, sh he showed me the light and it was bright. And I was uh, luckily smart enough to listen to him. So he introduced me to a, a, a VC. I worked for that VC during business school, uh, conversion capital based out of New York and just investing all across fintech verticals and companies like LearnVest, who was started by Alexa Van Tobel, who is now you know part of the Phoenix family from uh, an investor perspective. Uh, blend, data miner, fiscal note, orchard, paribus. I was learning more and more about what, what would eventually become fintech. So this just honestly just continued. I worked at Coastal Ventures for a period of time, uh, fell further down the payments rabbit hole then, and kind of just an odd twist of fate ended up at JP Morgan within the investment bank, focusing on the intersection of fintech and payments. So it started off as finance software, but then it slowly became payments is really becoming a pretty cool thing. And the market is huge. And eventually over time, you know, I moved back to the Bay Area and I just knew it was time to work at a startup. The best part of working in venture in my uh, 
opinion is being with the operators, being at the company, seeing all of the opportunities they're going after and all the challenges they're trying to face. So I always knew that was something I wanted to pursue. And eventually the time came and about a year ago was hell bent on joining a startup. But I was really looking at fintech payments and earlier in the life cycle where I could come in and add a, a ton of impact. And once I started giving enough people that filtering criteria, Phoenix was always in the conversation. And that eventually led to you know the role here and it started off in a different role, which we'll talk about and now as chief of staff, but a very, very lengthy answer. But I do think it provides more context for I initially thought all of this stuff and hopefully can resonate with the audience of you go through your career and think none of this makes sense, but 10 or 12 years later, it all happened for a reason. And I, I do feel like I landed at the best place possible for me to really dive in and be an operator and be effective. There are so many elements of that story that really resonated with me. Also capital markets nerd. My grandfather <laughs> played a very large role in me going into finance. I also discovered FinTech in around 2012. I got to an investing role that I had always thought was my North Star and turned out that my interests over time had changed. So you previously director of strategic partnerships. It'd be great to get an overview of that role and an overview of the chief of staff role and, and how that's been going over the, the last few months. Yeah, end it with, you know, I came to Phoenix and kept going through the interview process and kept meeting just fantastic people. And I'll joke that my final round interview with Richie was an awesome experience. And throughout, I keep saying mentally, this seems like the role for me. I felt like it was kind of like Star Wars and Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's like, you will join Phoenix and the hand wave. It's like, oh yeah, I will be here next Monday. So it, uh, I'll throw that shout out to Richie. He just has that unbelievable appeal to really showcase just how passionate he is. And it just, it's, it's a magnet for other people to join Phoenix. So I initially joined in the strategic partnerships role and my mandate was how do I help investors who either have a payments thesis or thinking about a payments thesis and how can we showcase what Phoenix provides and how we can help their portfolio companies and in turn help them as an investor because we do see this being a driver of value creation that is still largely untapped. So it started off as that it was a great opportunity to join the Phoenix team, build relationships. And eventually over time, it, uh, it kind of just, Richie and I would bump shoulders more and more each day. And we were working together more and more. And this chief of staff role came up and it was just an opportunity where I was just incredibly enthusiastic to join. So it's, it's been, I know that's kind of a, a longer preamble as well, but it's been an amazing role. I'm definitely a generalist in chief. So for all of my fellow generalists out there, you know, uh, shout out, I feel like there's no other way to live life. And in, in this chief of staff role, it, it, that's how you operate. It's an amazing experience. So not only that, but I'm really lucky that I get to partner with a CEO who trusts me, gives me a platform to work across the organization and find new ways to add value every single day. I mean, I leave, I, I literally you know, close my laptop every day and you can feel you know, the blood, sweat and tears that went into this place and the impact you have. And it's, it's really powerful. It sounds like the chief of staff is a very good role for generalists, people with an MBA background, a finance background, not specifically in one vertical. So what, what are the experiences that you draw most on in your work as chief of staff from your MBA or your previous work in finance or KPMG? 
Well, but first answer it in the sense of you need to know how does the company characterize or treat the chief of staff? It can be fairly nebulous depending on which company you talk to, but first it's how does the executive view the chief of staff? And for me, it seemed like Richie really wanted that force multiplier to come in and really add a lot of value to him, free up his time and give him more time to focus on building a company versus being in the weeds every day. So it's, it very much is being that trusted confidant who the CEO can rely on to get things done, to keep moving, you know, keep having progress being made. Uh, again, I'm kind of pretty dorky in kind of a historical context. So I always like to look at chief of staff and what that means outside of FinTech. It's become, it's become kind of, you know, the cliche role, but it does add so much value if you even look at what, what that role has meant historically. So it started off in the army and the white house. And if you look at presidents, each chief of staff was much different depending on which administration you looked at. The first chief of staff was under Eisenhower. He was you know, in the army and brought that kind of trusted confidant who gathered information, helped make decisions and achieve consensus. And that continued throughout administrations. But you can look at someone like a Jimmy Carter who didn't have a chief of staff and look at you know, his administration had a really difficult time making progress and pushing the legislative agenda. Then you look at someone like a you know, Jim Baker, who is Ronald Reagan's first chief of staff, who just came in automatically, organized, enabled decision-making and executed. So looking at how a company treats a chief of staff and then looking at historical precedent for what type of chief of staff you want to be is the first thing you need to do. For me, I had a CEO who viewed me as a chief of staff who can really be that force multiplier and was trusted to execute and work cross-functionally. So if, if I look at you know three or four months in, pretty much five critical skills, in my opinion. Uh, the first is you have to build trust and confidence with your CEO. I mean, you need to know of all the things that are happening each day in his or her universe, they have to be able to trust you and execute, not ask questions for you know, how to do something, but ask more of the what questions and just be relied on to get it done. So that's that's first and foremost. Being that honest broker across the organization and, you know, to me, that means building really strong relationships. The entire organization needs to know that you're not just an administrative layer. You're someone who is there to help everyone execute and build. So that's another really important component. The ability to handle numerous tasks on a day-to-day -day basis. Every day, it's like, you know, kind of how I equate it is you, you're juggling as many balls as you can and then each day, a new person throws another ball in and it's like, how many can you juggle without dropping one? And it, it's an art, but you have to be comfortable being able to manage priorities and manage all of those different tasks. If you don't like ambiguity and fast paced work environments, and if you want a highly structured role, I would probably tell you to look at another role within an organization. And lastly, how do you help the CEO navigate and the team navigate uncertainty? and just make better decisions. So how you reduce that uncertainty gap is aggregate information across the organization, be that centralized you know, information hub, and then open source it and make better decisions across the organization. That's, that's how I look at it. So if you love problem solving, if you love thinking strategically, and you really focus on execution, it's by far the most fulfilling experience you can ask for. How does a startup recognize it needs a chief of staff? What are the main trigger points in your opinion that Richie mentioned to you as to why he felt he needed a chief of staff? Like most people in FinTech, I get a lot of my wisdom from Twitter. 
So Zach, the CEO of Plaid, it might, it might have been a couple of weeks ago, but he had a, a really, for me, a insightful tweet. But as a, a CEO, you eventually turn from you know building a product to building a company. And there's this inflection point where you have to focus more on the latter. And that is, in my opinion, where a chief of staff will play a much larger role. So you can enable the executive to focus on company building and you can take away some of the day-to-day -day execution work. So it seemed like that's the path we were heading down, that we were gaining traction, onboarding customers, onboarding employees. And you know, if you ever had the chance to interact with Richie or listen to his podcast, I mean, he's definitely that magnet of attracting people and he needs to focus his time and energy on bringing the right people onto Phoenix, building the right culture, sustaining that culture, and frankly, just being able to do his thing and be a really great CEO. And if I can take away some of the administrative day-to-day -day burden, then I am helping him, in my opinion, be more successful. And that is making me a successful chief of staff. So companies really need to assess where are you in that journey and where is your executive team in that journey? And will a chief of staff be beneficial for your organization? You mentioned you follow Twitter and Zach from Plaid. Who else in the fintech space do you admire? Do you follow, you know, anyone that's like a really good thought leader other than Richie, obviously? Yeah, Richie, Jero, uh, anyone at, at the Phoenix team, but outside of shameless plugs, I worked with someone at JP Morgan, her name's Ellie Polanco. She recently started a company called Novello and I met Ellie years ago and she's the one who really helped school me when I was at JP Morgan on payments, distributed systems, and just some of these really cool things that were happening at the intersection of both payments and fintech. She's recently started Novello, which focuses on you know, some of the pain points in account to account money movement and it, what she's building to enable the mitigation of risk around that money movement is really cool. She's just started Novello, but I would highly recommend the audience check out what she's building because she's going to, she's going to crush it. And she was uh, also just a great mentor to me and friend to me that uh, is worth pointing out. I, I am lucky that on our cap table, I get to work with just amazing FinTech leaders, both on and off Twitter. So I mean, Alexa Van Tobel, who when I was first introduced to FinTech, one of her first investors spoke at that same class where I was a TA, had just outlined what Alexa built and now kind of coming full circle and getting to work with her at Phoenix is just kind of surreal. Then, you know, the Satya Patels from Homebrew, the Bain Capital team, I mean, Jameson Hill, Ashley Paston, Merritt Hummer, Matt Harris. I mean, amazing people I get to partner with. Rebecca from Insights. Natalie Liu, uh, Will Kohler from Lightspeed now. I mean, you rattle off these names and, you know, these are people I was previously following Twitter. It's really humbling that I get to work with these individuals every single day. So those are individuals I'd like to point out. Another one that deserves a kind of special shout out is uh, Alejandro Guerrero from Act One Ventures. What he's done in particular over the last few weeks on championing diversity riders and what that means for investors is really worth pointing out. So a uh, huge shout out to him. And he was featured in, in Pro Rata last week. So if, if your audience hasn't read that, would highly, highly recommend that. And would end with not necessarily FinTech, but Jennifer Tejada from PagerDuty. Uh, she was, you know, not to plug another podcast, but she was on uh, Harry Stebbings 20 Minute VC, I think it was last week. And I was just listening to it when I was walking around and 
the number of times that I stopped when I was walking and just paused and just like wrote down notes on my iPhone was incredible. So I'd highly recommend listening to that, particularly for you know, an audience of potentially students who are looking for the next jump off in their career. But she had discussed just how motivated she was by experiences where you could learn the most amount in the shortest period of time. She wasn't driven by money or power, but how rich the learning experience is. She's been in a couple podcasts where I've listened to her and just how she approaches management, life, learning, and it really resonated with me. And that's a very similar mantra that I like to follow. And she's also had a career where she's had multiple stops at multiple different organizations across functions. So I would definitely look at that and how she maximizes learning and you know that increasing the slope of the learning curve. Awesome. Sounds like there's a lot of good content there for our listeners and me to, to catch up on. There's way too much content and not enough time. I legit spend, I think my first hour and a half each morning, just getting through my newsletters and every free moment that I have, I mean, I can be walking downstairs, I don't get a cup of coffee or, you know, make lunch and I will have a podcast in and try to absorb as much as I can, even in that three to four minute period. So it's overwhelming, but there's just, I mean, a ton out there and I can always open source kind of what I read and follow or listen to. So it's a great time to be alive. Definitely on the podcast front, I think not walking to class or to work from the station has definitely reduced the amount of time that I have available for listening to podcasts. I, I still need to work on managing all of the content. It's, it's been really interesting chatting that there's a few people you mentioned that I definitely think would make good guests and maybe further down the line, I might ask for an introduction or two to see if we could get some folks you know onto the podcast. Definitely. It's been really great hearing about your journey, I think, for MBA students specifically, the, the chief of staff role. Sounds like a, a very interesting role. Hopefully, you know, a lot of people listening to the podcast will start to consider that because I think a lot of people want to be involved in a startup, but might not necessarily have an idea themselves or don't have the risk tolerance. But joining an early stage or a slightly later stage startup in a chief of staff role definitely seems like a great option. Thank you for sharing your insights. It's, it's been awesome as usual talking. Yeah, to my fellow uh, generalists out there, there is hope. And my fellow MBAs, despite Twitter bashing, there is significant opportunity for you to leverage your skill set. So if anyone wants to reach out, I mean, DM on Twitter, you know, hit me up whenever. And this has been a blast, but really appreciate it, Michael. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Cheers for your time. All right. Cheers, man. Bye.